0: Good evening, everyone. My name is Brad Elder. I'm a faculty neurosurgeon at The Ohio State University, and I have the pleasure tonight of hosting uh, the next in a series of guidelines podcasts. This podcast is regarding the uh, recently published topic. uh, The paper is entitled, Congress of Neurological Surgeons, Systematic Review and Evidence-Based Guidelines Update on the Role of Targeted Therapies and Immunotherapies in the Management of Progressive Glioblastoma. This was published in uh, Journal of Neurooncology in October of 2021. Uh, we have three authors from the paper uh, with us tonight who will lead off with a discussion of the topic, and then we'll turn it over to some questions from myself, uh, the host, as well as my resident co-host, Nolan Winslow. So the, the authors with us tonight are Evan Winograd, uh, Isabel Germano, and Ryan Orman, And with that, I will turn it over to the authors and they can go ahead and take it away.
1: Thank you, Brad. This is Ryan Ormond, University of Colorado. Just to lead off, I was involved in the initial publication of progressive glioblastoma guidelines back uh, several years ago. Um, At that time, we only published one guideline recommendation and we'll talk about how that uh, has changed slightly with the updated guidelines this time around, but At that time, we had done some initial searches for other targeted therapies, as well as uh, looking into some of these other avenues such as immunotherapy, which is also part of the guideline now. And there just wasn't enough data out there to really formulate questions or even fundamentally uh, talk about the subject beyond uh, where we took it, which was essentially just bevacizumab at the time. This time around, there's a lot more data. So our goal in preparing for the guidelines was to ask a number of questions, trying to to better understand the role of targeted therapies and immunotherapies in general um, beyond Bevacizumab as well as combination uh, therapies with Bevacizumab in combination with other targeted or cytotoxic agents as well as uh, just other agents in combination and where the data stood at this point in time. And we certainly reviewed thousands of abstracts and, uh, and full papers in, in developing this guideline and work to, to make sense of all the literature out there, a lot of which is negative, um, unfortunately, for our progressive glioblastoma patients, but, uh, but important to coalesce. And, and that was the goal of, uh, of our publication. Beginning, I'd like to start by going through the first three questions, which are all related to bevacizumab and, and discuss some of our findings. The first one is very similar to what uh, was asked in the first guidelines document back in 2014. And it was specifically looking at bevacizumab as a monotherapy. And we gave a level three recommendation previously that stated the following. It said, treatment with bevacizumab is recommended as it provides improved disease control compared to historical controls as measured by best imaging response and progression-free survival at six months. Um, As you know, bevacizumab is a little controversial in terms of the discrepancy between improved overall survival versus improved progression-free survival in the uh, trials that were done with it as monotherapy. But looking over the literature, that's happened since uh, the last guideline was published. For good or ill, the the guideline recommendation level didn't change. It remains level three. And we did slightly change the wording now where we say treatment with bevacizumab is suggested in the treatment of progressive glioblastoma as it provides improved disease control compared to historical controls as measured by best imaging response and progression-free survival at six months while not providing evidence for improvement in overall survival, and I think that little end caveat is important. Uh, it wasn't in; it was included in the discussion, but not in the guideline itself previously. Um, and the bevacizumab is is an option, but it but it's only been shown to improve progression free survival in in randomized trials and not uh, overall survival improvement. And there were a number of additional uh, Studies that had been performed over the ensuing years, but uh, none of them raised the recommendation level beyond level three. Now, moving on to question two, there has been a lot of interest in attempting to use bevacizumab in combination with other agents, and that interest has resulted in a number of clinical trials using bevacizumab in combination with uh, with other targeted agents, as well as cytotoxic agents. So our question two was specifically related to to the use of bevacizumab with cytotoxic agents. One of the most uh, well-known trials in this regard was bevacizumab in combination with lomustine, and although there were others as well, but in in the end, and we can talk about this in more detail, but the, the question was uh, using bevacizumab in combination with cytotoxic agents, and was it superior to standard salvage cytotoxic chemotherapy? And our recommendation that was a level three recommendation was that there is insufficient evidence to show benefit or harm of bevacizumab in combination with cytotoxic therapies in progressive glioblastoma due to a lack of evidence supporting a clearly defined benefit without significant toxicity. And I, I think that's an important caveat that uh, that most studies that we reviewed showed similar efficacy if you looked at progression-free survival and overall survival, but greater toxicity. And, and again, the most famous example of that is arguably the, the low mustine trial in combination with Bevacizumab where there are certainly um, individual responders, but groups as a whole, there's increased toxicity without without a proven survival benefit uh, with any cytotoxic agent that we reviewed in in our trial. That's a level three recommendation, but certainly as strong as the evidence is right now. And then we had a final question, which was looking at the use of bevacizumab in combination with targeted agents and whether that was superior to standard salvage cytotoxic chemotherapy. And unfortunately, that question um, did have some studies, but fewer studies and uh, and outcomes were mixed. And for that reason, we were unable to, to give a recommendation and stated simply that there was insufficient evidence uh, to leave a recommendation. And we can we can certainly talk more Uh, in detail in a few minutes about what findings we did include in the description of the manuscript, but uh, certainly not enough evidence to leave a recommendation.
0: Great. I think that for the next few questions, was uh, Dr. Germano going to?
2: Yes. Thank you, Dr. Elder and Dr. Armand. My name is Isabel Germano, um, professor of neurosurgery at Mount Sinai, New York. And I think that what I would like to focus on is for the next few minutes is why did we look at other targeted therapies other than Bev? So it is important to stress that um, these therapies, targeted therapies, have been gaining attention recently, especially with the identification and characterization of several molecular variations among GBM. Uh, the possibility that um, GBM patients become TMZ uh, resistant or refractory. Another thing that I would like to mention um, is that in these guidelines and other topics related to this, we call the disease progressive glioblastoma as opposed to recurrent glioblastoma. And the term is chosen because we believe that although we as neurosurgeons um, perform a quote unquote, gross total resection of the enhancing tumor, There is always tumor that is left behind. And hence the wording of progression so that it is clear to the patients, to the referring physicians, to everyone involved in the care of this disease that the disease is never really eradicated. And this is why there is so much interest in finding other therapies, right? So the, the number uh, four, Question of uh, these guidelines uh, was revolving around uh, whether or not uh, targeted agents different than bev as monotherapy um, were superior to standard uh, salvage cytotoxic uh, chemotherapy. And um, what we have found was uh, we are 23 articles that describe the use of targeted therapies other than bev, and of these. Uh, 16, uh, we're focusing on the use of it as a single agent. And the three uh, top agents were tyrosine kinase inhibitors, retinoids, and phosphatidyl inositol-3 uh, kinase. And unfortunately, none of those really worked out uh, to receive um, a recommendation showing that there was enough evidence to support their use. So similar to the prior recommendation of 2014, uh, there is no specific recommendation based on lack of strong evidence supporting a clear, uh, definite benefit or detriment. That being said, there were some promising results. And um, those were um, two. One was a class two study, showed a trend toward a survival benefit when combining um, jeftanib, which is an AGFR TK in- inhibitor, and uh, sediranibib, the gef TK inhibitor, and in this paper, there was, there was an improvement that was uh, slightly not definitely uh, significant to call it a recommendation, so with potential benefit uh, jeftinib to be used in monotherapy, and the other study was um, regorafenib. This is a multi-kinase inhibitor acting on angiogenesis, cell proliferation, and, and tumor stroma, so this is an inhibitor of uh, the uh, um, FGR1, uh, PDGF, CKIT, RET, um, BRAF, and so on and so forth. So really a broad spectrum, which really makes sense with glioblastoma. And this is a um, set class two data that, however, was uh, just by itself. So it does not really uh, make it into a full recommendation, but something promising to uh, perhaps uh, continue to um, look uh, forward to. So the path forward is that this conclusion does not mean to suggest that studies that are targeted uh, on looking at these agents alone or in combination are not worthy. What we want to emphasize is that when there are trials, it's very important for us as neurosurgeon to enroll those patients in the trials so that more evidence is um, accrued. And then the next question had to do about the targeted agents in combination with cytotoxic therapies and whether or not this was superior to standard salvage cytotoxic um, uh, therapy, looking at both a progression-free survival and overall survival. And for this, we found eight papers that qualified to, um, uh, that met our entry criteria. Two of the studies included the use of uh, tamoxifen, and uh, the recommendation here is a, uh, um, uh, class 3, uh, uh, based on class 3 data, uh, showing that there is no benefit in using tamoxifen. Four studies were uh, included um, using uh, nitrosurium, like uh, lomustin and BCNU, and also here, uh, there is no benefit, and two were um, uh, tyrosine inhibitors um, that were uh used in combination, and there was no overall efficacy beyond monotherapy. So more to come, uh, but nothing really that has been proven to be beneficial at the present time.
3: So I'm Evan Winograd, and I'm a neurosurgeon. Uh, actually worked on this paper with Dr. Ormond over the past couple of years before it got published. And now I'm down at um, Northside Hospital in Georgia. So I had questions six through eight, which um, were a new addition beyond the paper that was written previously. Um, So this is new to the guidelines, which is the discussion of immunotherapy. And this was exciting. Um, Unfortunately, we didn't have any significant data to really present in terms of a a recommendation to be made just because there's really insufficient evidence at this point. Most of these studies were phase one and phase two. Um, The vast majority actually were phase one trials and specifically with low, low numbers of uh, patient accrual. And this just made it difficult to find a high powered study to give a solid recommendation. But the exciting thing is this is new. So I think we're in the early phase of seeing what this data will show. And there's going to be a dearth of data over the next several years. Um, So question six was discussing immunotherapy as a monotherapy, um, whether or not this was superior to standard salvage cytotoxic chemotherapy. so we didn't find any ability to make a specific recommendation. However, there were a couple interesting studies that I wanted to bring up. Um, one of the studies, we looked into a bunch of different options, including vaccines, um, convection enhanced delivery of, of agents, as well as um, immune checkpoint inhibitors. And in terms of the uh, Narita study, this was a, a relatively low powered study with a low number of patients for understandable reasons. but this was a phase three t- trial. They didn't actually meet their primary endpoints, but this was our one class one designated trial. Um, ultimately, you know, it, it again didn't meet its, its primary endpoints, but it's interesting that we're getting into the use of vaccines and finally able to add these to the, um, the guidelines. And I think there's going to be a lot more that comes out in the future. I know I myself personally worked on a vaccine um, back in Buffalo. Now, most importantly, I wanted to bring up, and I think this is one to really follow, I think we're going to have more data coming out on immune checkpoint inhibitors in the near future. And I'm really excited about this. Now, pembrolizumab um, in the CLOESI study um, was used as both an adjuvant and neoadjuvant agent. Um, So it was neoadjuvant and adjuvant in one group of patients with with progressive glioblastoma um, before their second resection. And in the second group, there was um, pembrolizumab only used as an adjuvant agent they actually saw a significant survival benefit, which was 13.7 months versus 7.5 months, a uh, overall survival, median overall survival at that point. So this is something to really look at and follow. And I think the next phase trial hopefully will accrue some more data and show us some interesting results. And as we know, there's other immune checkpoint inhibitors available. So I'll be curious to see where this ends up um, either as a monotherapy or eventually even as maybe dual therapy with something else. Um, question seven was looking at the use of immunotherapy in combination with targeted agents, um, and whether or not this was superior to standard salvage chemotherapy. Again, it, we were unable to make a specific, um, recommendation, but, um, Most of these trials were relatively low powered and again, didn't show the results that would allow us to make a recommendation. So there was not much really to speak of here. Uh, We only found very few trials. And then question eight was the use of immunotherapy in combination with bevacizumab, which whether or not this is superior to standard salvage cytotoxic chemotherapy. And we only found one study with interim results that showed maybe a potential benefit, but there were no conclusions that could really be drawn from this. So ultimately the big data find here, I think would be the Cloessi trial and immune checkpoint inhibitors. And the fact that much of this is in early stage. And I think we're going to see a lot of data coming out over the next several years, which could change, I hope maybe at some point change the trajectory of, um, of our treatment of glioblastoma, especially in the progressive glioblastoma phase. Um, so with that, I. Guess we could probably open it up to questions at this point.
0: Great. Yeah. No, that was an excellent summary. The, you know, one of the questions, the first question that comes to mind, you know, having read a lot of these papers, do we think within any of this data there are subgroups, whether they be molecular subgroups or or what have you, that, you know, if you if you analyze those separately, you might get a different sense of the of efficacy of some of these treatment options.
1: Well, that's certainly true, uh, Brad. There are some trials that have done just that, right? I think a, a good example is uh, looking at EGFR V3, right, with, uh, with EGFR inhibition, which shows that, that in the general studies across the progressive glioblastoma population didn't show efficacy, but in smaller uh, cohorts, unfortunately uncontrolled, um, did show efficacy at least in selected patient populations. And I think there's certainly promise for that in the future where we molecularly profile patients and uh, select specific targeted therapies based on mutational analysis. And uh, And so I, I certainly hope that future studies uh, delve into that, especially from an immunotherapy perspective. I think there's evidence also, I think it's predominantly in the EG EGFR amplified uh, patient population, but showing some efficacy, at least of an immune response in in those patients with uh, specific targeted immunotherapies. So I I do think that is an avenue we need to look more uh, carefully at. One of the other things to point out in a lot of these trials that compared Bevacizumab is there have been a lot of you know, say five to 10 years of, uh, of research wondering if bevacizumab resistance was a serious problem. And what a lot of these studies did show was that there are responders from a progression free survival standpoint, as well as even overall survival standpoint in a subgroup of patients um, in a lot of these trials with bevacizumab, even as monotherapy, even after they've been heavily pretreated. treated Showing that there's there's some opportunity to continue patients or retrial patients on Bevacizumab even after failure um, in some of these trials, which historically has often been um, an exclusion criteria for a lot of these trials. If patients that have been on prior Bev, they then aren't offered clinical trial participation. And so I think that's one of the exciting parts of a lot of these trials, is showing that it's reasonable to consider inclusion of those patients who've been previously treated with Bevacizumab into these trials to get them into future clinical studies that maybe they've been excluded from in the past.
2: Your question is really very stimulating and challenging because I think one thing we need to keep in mind with the guidelines is that it's always retrospective, right? So we're looking at data that was published in 2014, so the data really compiled three or four years before. And so what you asked is, what if we now look at um, subgroups and uh, molecular profiling? And clearly that data will be available when we're going to be ready to write the next uh, chapter in four years or five years from now. And so just as an example to, um, as a a follow-up of what I was saying before, I I mentioned that the uh, jeftinib um, with uh, sedirinib, which is EGFR and uh, VGF uh, TK inhibitors had a slight improvement, but that was all commerce. So now if we're profiling and putting in that trial, only those patients that are EGFR and VGF uh, mutated, then we can have a different result. Similarly, with the Rafinib, that showed, it was actually a class two data. However, the trial had to be stopped um, for reasons, but it, it that is a broad umbrella and acts against the BRAF. So imagine if all of a sudden only BRAF patients are enrolled in that uh, study. So four or five sure. years down the line, we might have different results.
0: That's so I was that's actually going to say something point.
3: very similar. <laughs> so I'm glad you brought that up.
0: Well, let me, uh, I want to give our uh, resident co-host an opportunity to ask questions.
4: Thanks, Dr. Elder. I wanted to thank the author group for compiling this for, you know, the benefit of our educational and clinician community. And thanks to Dr. Elder for hosting and letting me listen in and learn. Um, Dr. Germano might have just addressed one of my first questions when she answered that last one. I was going to mention, I was wondering about you know, EGFR and PDGF, other transmembrane proteins, they're relatively commonly mutated in GBM. Um, but as you mentioned, we have really smaller trials and maybe tiny subgroups that show a tiny bit of benefit. Whereas the brain mets or cancer diseases like non-small cell lung cancer, they they look a lot more promising. Do you think that that's mostly a matter of the trial size and the effect, the fact that the, these mutations may occur a little later in GBM, or or is it? more along the lines of GBM is a multi-mutational disease and in certain uh, lung cancers, that's the main driver mutation. What what would your response be to that?
1: I would argue, maybe I'll start with that. And if someone else wants to chime in, that would be fine. I I think part of the problem in glioblastoma in general is access, right? Some of these agents don't readily cross the blood-brain barrier. Through their um, process of administration, and uh, you know, especially if we get into antibody therapies, for example, and you know, tyrosine kinase inhibitors, some of them do cross well, but it depends on their size, um, how well they cross into the brain, and 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 that's certainly bioavailability is one of the bigger challenges, I think, in the brain versus other parts of the body for a lot of these agents and. Create some of the challenges that uh, that we've had finding agents that are efficacious, um, and and even if we get them in, you know, even if they're efficacious, I guess in a dish, right? Can we get levels that aren't too toxic for the brain in the brain through a means that's reasonable for their course of administration to then make it efficacious, and that that's one of the long-standing challenges I think in glioblastoma.
3: I think the other part of this is glioblastoma also creates this massive tumor microenvironment that's incredibly complex. So, adding to the fact that it's difficult to access the tumor through the blood-brain barrier, you also have another barrier that's on the nanoscopic and you know almost exosomal level that's protecting the tumor from any agents that that might get there. I mean, we even we've seen studies where there's exosomal data that shows flow cytometry that shows exosomes with EGFR V3 and um, different glioblastoma specific mutations traveling in the patient's bloodstream. So it happens with other cancers as well. So that that doesn't relegate glioblastoma as completely different than other cancers, such as metastatic tumors. But I think there's just a lot more to the picture that we have to understand in terms of crossing the blood brain barrier, um, understanding the glymphatic system and then understanding how to maybe modify or even get through that tumor microenvironment a little bit better and understand it more.
2: And Nolan, I think that what you um, said really resonated, right? So you said, is it possible that glioblastoma multiforme, and you specifically use the word multiforme, differently from other primary tumors, metastatic to brain, has Multiple different receptors and uh, molecular signature. And I think that our ancestors, the pathologists that defined this as the glioblastoma multiforme, when they were looking at this histology, they, they already recognized that there are all different ta- shape and sizes, right? Some of them are GFA positive, some of them lose the GFA positivities, and so on and so forth. So even in those days, they already recognized that these are different. And so, in addition to what has been said already, I think that um, the fact that there are multiple molecular signatures, and that that are also changing over time because we have, and I'm sure you all do, patients that have the first operation, and some of the uh, genetic signature is totally different than when the second operation comes along. So very complicated.
1: I, I would like to add maybe one more thing that I think is important for this discussion, which is that these guidelines did not distinguish between IDH mutant and IDH wild type grade 4 astrocytoma, which has now been defined by the WHO into separate entities. So glioblastoma is IDH wild type, grade 4 astrocytic neoplasms, and IDH mutant now has a a new name and is separate from glioblastoma. Uh, However, for the purposes of this guideline, given the timelines that we were looking through, um, many of the studies didn't distinguish between IDH mutant or IDH wild type pathologies. And so we elected to treat them together, given that the majority of the studies we were reviewing did not separate the pathologies um, if they were grade four or not. And that also in the future will probably play a role in terms of outcome studies and, and findings of future guidelines.
0: So we're running a little low on time. I wanted to ask just one final question of the, of the authors. What, what, is, what trial do we need next? What is the next trial that needs to happen that in, in your minds?
1: So I think some of the, the biggest ones that need to, to happen um, are related to the immunotherapy um, trials that are, that are upcoming. Some of the checkpoint inhibitor trials uh, that have gone through phase two, but haven't quite made it to phase three, that uh, that Evan was talking about, um, as well as some of the additional uh, targeted therapy trials that that Isabel uh, had brought up, and I, and and doing some of those in combination, um, maybe the future.
2: And I think that what we said. Um... Probably is very important, and that is that the patients are uh, stratified by molecular signature, and by so doing, then uh, the trial will be uh, more specific, and hopefully, we can get some results that do reach that level of um, evidence uh, for us to for for neurosurgeons to make recommendations.
0: Great. Well, I. I... Apologize that we ran a little bit over time, uh, but I think that speaks to how interesting this topic is and how much there is to discuss. Uh, it also speaks to how much work goes into writing uh, one of these guidelines papers. So I want to commend the authors for all their uh, hard work and all their diligence uh, and echo their thoughts on, On, uh, I think Dr. Germano said it, said it best, encouraging neurosurgeons to enroll patients into trials. This is how uh, this is how we take the, the little steps that, that lead us down this, this road towards helping our patients with uh, glioblastoma. So with that, again, thank you to the authors. I appreciate your time tonight. This was a fantastic discussion. And I, I want to also thank uh, Nolan Winslow for uh, helping me with the uh, hosting duties tonight. And uh, for our listeners, uh, thank you for listening. And we look forward to our next Guidelines podcast coming up soon. So thank you very much. Have a great night, everyone.